Good morning, good afternoon, or good whenever it is that you're tuning in to join us here for this. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel Church, and it is my privilege to get to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, I feel safe in guessing that there isn't anyone listening uh, to this today that hasn't had their week impacted in some way by the coronavirus. Uh, I regularly get the chance on Sundays to open God's Word, so this is, this is normal for me, but I typically do it in a room full of teenagers, and this week I get to do it in an empty room staring into a camera. As we adapt to so many changes, it can be very easy to focus on all of the negative impacts that we're experiencing with social distancing. Maybe that's the isolation from friends and family. Perhaps you were late to the store, and now you're finding creative ways of rationing toilet paper. You've had a lot of extra time at home with your family, and originally I was planning to put that on the positive column, but it's week three now, and not every day is rainbows and unicorns, and I'll let you decide which list it's on for you. But I think it's also important to remember some of the positives that have come out of all of this craziness. We are seeing many examples of people's willingness to love and to serve and to sacrifice for those around them and in their communities. I don't have to preach this week with the little pop star microphone uh, that we usually wear. Uh, Those things are not very comfortable, and uh, I think I might have a weird-shaped head. I can preach in shorts this week without the fear of condemnation or persecution, which is nice. For all you know, maybe I'm even wearing Crocs. You don't know. One unexpected benefit uh, that I'm particularly thankful for is that I'm not preaching live. I have this lifelong habit that I just can't shake of saying really stupid things. And at no point in my life does that habit scare me more than when I get the opportunity to preach to the entire church. But right now we're recorded, and if I say something stupid, I can just stop and start all over. For all you know, this might be the ninth sermon that I've preached today, and these poor guys that are here helping me, maybe they've been here for four or going on five hours at this point hearing the same sermon over and over and over again. I'm going to talk about loving our neighbors a little bit later, but for all you know, they don't even like me right now, and this could be take one or this could be take ten. You'll really never know. During all of this chaos, we've been forced to adopt a posture of flexibility as each new day often presents more questions than answers. And it's in the midst of all that change that we are experiencing daily, and in some cases hourly, Let's gladly turn to something that does not change, and that would be the eternal word of the Lord found in the scriptures. Maybe right now as you're, as you're scrolling or turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, however you choose to get there, let me pray for us. God, I am so thankful that you are in control. You have not been removed from your throne. You aren't caught off guard by what's going on in our world right now. Your truth that you spoke through Paul 2,000 years ago was relevant to them then, and it's just as relevant to us now. Help us to hear from you today in whatever ways are necessary for us to each draw closer to you and live in ways that honor you. Well, we've been in Galatians for uh, a while now, and Paul has really been hammering home his point about freedom that we find in Christ as opposed to the burden of the law. 
If you've been following with us, Pastor Eric finished up last week the sixth argument that Paul made, all proving the same point. And maybe it's just me, but lately the book of Galatians has felt like a CD that got stuck on repeat. And if you're under a certain age, CD stands for compact disc, and it's this way that we used to listen to music in the dark ages known as the 90s. I remember being in high school, uh, hanging out with some friends one evening, and one of them put on the song Killing Me Softly by the Fugees, but they put it on repeat, and that went on for a few hours. This incident happened 20 years ago, and I still remember and still hate that song to this day. Now, I'm hopeful that that's not how you're starting to feel about Galatians at this point, and this certainly wasn't Paul's intention in his writing. His approach was that the idea of freedom was so important that they needed to focus on it from several different angles until everyone understood it. Now, this week marks a much welcome transition and change in the trajectory of the book as Paul moves out of his theological argument and into the practical application. If what he has said about freedom is true, What should that freedom look like in the lives of the Galatians, and what should it look like for us today? Let's read and see what Paul has to say in Galatians 5, and then we'll break it down. If you want to join me picking up in verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Paul starts out verse 1 by emphasizing the importance and the necessity of freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And there's a whole bunch of things that that I want to get to today, but there is an important theological truth in these first few words of chapter 5 that I want to make sure we stop on before we go on through the rest of the passage. Read the start of verse 1 again and tell me who set you free. It's Christ. Christ set you free. Fact. End of sentence. You didn't set yourself free, and Paul doesn't say if Christ set you free. Jesus did not live a perfect, sinless life just to serve as an example. He died to be your substitute. 
He did it to obtain for you the freedom that you could have never accomplish on your own. And that freedom is made yours not through any good you do or anything you've earned. That freedom is bestowed upon you. When you, through faith, turn your life over to him and say, you're the boss. You did what I can't. You're perfect, and I can never be. And that freedom, that sonship is God's gift, that free gift that he pours out on us. Now, Paul writes these opening sentences to the church in Galatia with the assumption that they have all been set free. And that reality of that freedom is going to be pivotal to us understanding everything else that Paul's going to say today. So back to verse 1 again. It is for freedom that you have been set free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul is all about freedom. If you ever use the same word twice in one short sentence, you're either a really bad writer or it's a concept you really want to drive home. With Paul, I'm going to lean towards option two. I think as we listen to this as Americans, we feel like we have such a deep understanding of freedom. And we invented freedom, right? Freedom and America are two words that mean the same thing. At least we think they do. But that generalized American definition of freedom isn't what Paul's writing about today. We tend to reduce freedom down to a series of personally autonomous choices. Freedom represents the concept of being handed a blank check at 18 years old and telling you that you can do whatever you want with your life. We love the idea that that nobody can tell us anything about how we should live our own lives. I want the steering wheel of my life, and I should have the right to do whatever I want. This is not what Paul's talking about. The idea of Christian freedom is very different from the freedom that most Americans think about. But what are those key differences? Well, they show up in two ways as you ask yourselves some questions. What are you set free from, and what are you set free for? For discussing the the generic understanding of American freedom, you, you will see that we're set free from what? From rules, from expectations, from obligation, and we're set free for, for what purpose? What does our freedom actually accomplish? Personal happiness, maybe? Uh, the freedom to do what makes you feel good, uh, to pursue whatever pleasures you want? Contrast that with what Paul is talking about when he discusses Christian freedom. Set free from what? Free from the bondage of sin, free from the punishment of sin, free from guilt and from shame, and free from the crushing weight of the law. And set free for what? Well, we see it if we look forward to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Free to lovingly obey God. Free to serve and to love others. You see how those are are drastically different concepts? Paul continues on. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Who in their right mind wants to go back to a yoke of slavery? If you've ever taken a dog for a walk and you you let them off the leash, it's, it's not an easy conversation getting them to go back onto the leash. And I think Paul is assuming that we're smarter than our dogs. Continuing on in verse 2, Paul says this, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. 
Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We see in this section that it's not about rules, it's about love. Paul uses the example of circumcision, which to the Galatians in the early church was a huge deal, and to us not quite as much. But it is representative of issues that we can uh, can and do find ourselves struggling with at times. Now, without taking the time to explain circumcisions to all the kids watching with you, circumcision was representative of an external act to try to make God happy and intended to win God's favor as it was being demonstrated at that time. Now, historically, looking back, circumcision was very significant for the Jewish people. It was their outward signal that they had a unique relationship with God. There was nothing wrong with circumcision. God commanded it to them, and they took great pride in it as a nation, and it meant a lot to them. But clinging to it, holding on to it, failed to recognize that Jesus had changed the importance of that act for them. And there were some that were drawn back and trying to elevate it to a a higher significance than it should have. And these teachers had come into Galatia and they were adding to the gospel. It was Jesus and, it was Jesus plus, Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and the law. The law wasn't bad and circumcision wasn't bad, but they were being used to try to earn God's favor and distorted the gospel. And so that made them bad. Now, if we aren't careful, this thinking can trickle into our thoughts. Well, God will love me more if I do. God will find me more acceptable if I. I'll only go to heaven if I. Now, I'm guessing for you, this isn't circumcision, but what is it? How do you try to earn God's love? Is it through giving? Is it by holding a strict moral code and holding everyone else to your same standard? Are you slowly bringing yourself back under the law and expecting others to do the same? Have you ever thought that if I do something, God will love or approve of me more? I'm going to blow your mind. God already loves you. There's nothing you can do to add to that. And here's the crazy part. There's nothing you can do to take away from that. God loves you fully and completely on your best day, and he loves you fully and completely on your worst day. That's what freedom means in the life of a Christian. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You see, it's not about circumcision. It's about your trust in God to accept you as you are and your responsibility in that to respond in love, both to God and to those around you. But they just couldn't handle it. There's no way God can love us unless we follow all his rules. And I really just picture Paul just just shaking his head as he writes this, talking to the people, teaching this this gospel plus, like, like, you guys just don't get it. Tim Keller said it well, as he's known for, it's either Jesus for everything or Jesus means nothing. You can't add to Christ without subtracting Christ. 
Then Paul turns back to the Galatians that, that were starting to buy into that, that kind of thinking and starting to follow the law again. And so he says this to them in verse 7. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. We see here it's so easy to get off track. Now, Paul loves me enough to throw in a sports metaphor, so I appreciate him for that. Uh, he points to the track and the idea of a, of a runner on a good path, and someone cuts in front of them, and their progress gets derailed. Now, I love sports. If you've uh, heard me uh, at all, that's never been in question. Uh, I have always dreamed of being stuck at home uh, with nothing to do, but in those dreams, I always had plenty of live sports there to comfort me, and I've been driven to the point lately that I've started watching last summer's Tour de France bike race, uh, and I'm enjoying it. I'm a nerd, and, and I know it. Uh, but bike racing is so simple. There's this, this just big group, and they're going fast and straight, and as long as everyone goes where they're supposed to go, it, it works out pretty good. But almost every stage, someone cuts in in front of another rider, and, and, and there's this massive chain reaction and pileup of bodies and bikes on the road, and I picture this as, as Paul is describing this. This is what uh, getting off track looks like. Who cut in on you, he asked. You were, you were doing so well. Why did you fall for it? And it's not a genuine question. He's not trying to figure out who did it. This isn't investigative journalism on Paul's part, but more of a, how could you let them do that to you? Why do you think you, you needed more than what I had already taught you? And he adds to that a, a cooking metaphor, which, if you know me, is completely lost on me. Um, all my sentences that involve the word cooking uh, end with the words hot pocket, top ramen, and macaroni and cheese. Uh, I am blessed uh, by God to have a wonderful wife who is a terrific cook. Uh, that's probably why I'm still alive. I remember one time uh, she was making bread, and, and she expressed some, some worry, some concern that her yeast had died and that it wouldn't rise. And I just remember sitting there thinking and then asking her, what do you mean yeast can die? It, it, it's alive? And that was my introduction to yeast, and I, I'm guessing I can't be the only one with, with that level of understanding, but Paul understood baking better than I did, and so he uses this example of yeast as this contaminant that, that spreads throughout. A little false teaching, a little Jesus plus thinking had entered the Galatian church, and these false truths had grown within that group. Now, there's a great quote that's attributed to Benjamin Franklin. He, he likely wasn't the first to use an aversion of it, but it goes something like this. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of a horse, the rider was lost. For the want of a rider, the battle was lost. For the want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Little beginnings big endings. It helps us to understand and, and illustrate the progressive nature of false teaching within a community. The things that the Galatians had believed incorrectly about the law, about grace, about freedom, were adding up to have this crippling effect on their faith and on their community. And Paul issues them a very stern warning uh, to those that were stirring up this conflict, picking up in verse 10. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? 
In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. There is no part way with the law. And Paul expresses this very passionately. I don't know how much you've heard from Jesus, but I can tell you confidently Jesus doesn't mess around with false teachers. He doesn't pull punches. It's far too important. And Paul follows him in this passionate sentiment. Listen to these words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Jesus gets straight to the point when it comes to false teachers and Paul follows suit. But Paul finds himself defending himself a a little bit here. There were some false accusations against Paul that that he was still requiring circumcision and and thus justifying the teaching of these false teachers. Now, these accusations were likely tied to the fact that Paul encouraged Timothy, uh, his his, uh, disciple, sort of his, his mentee, to be circumcised. But this argument overlooks the fact that Timothy was an exception and not a standard. And it forgets that Paul refused to have Titus, uh, who was a Gentile, circumcised just to please the the Jewish community. Timothy's situation was unique. He had a Greek father, and, and that would have prevented his circumcision, but he was also raised by his Jewish mother. Now, he wasn't proving the necessity of circumcision, just removing a stumbling block to the Jewish people that Timothy was going to be ministering to. His decision was motivated by love and not conformity to the law or earning approval. If circumcision was irrelevant in in either direction, as argued by uh, verse 6, then why let that be a stumbling block that interfered with the gospel being shared with the Jews? Timothy's circumcision doesn't prove their point. It actually strengthens Paul's point, arguing that either way it was irrelevant. And then in in verse 12, Paul gets very harsh. Uh, I was worried what I might say, but, but not anything more disturbing than what Paul has to say to those that were misleading the Galatians. Uh, one commentator called it the most aggressive verse in the entire Bible. You can really hear the frustration in Paul at this moment as he loves these people and some people were coming in and, and were in the process of derailing them. Paul is telling them, if you think that the law will save you and it won't, then you have to be all in. There, there's no part way with the law. James tells us in his letter, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You don't get just a little bit of the law. Paul is is dramatically making the point that they don't really want what they think that they want. I wouldn't condone this as a a recommended course of action, but there was a time where if you as a parent caught your teenager smoking a cigarette, the expected punishment was that you would make your kids smoke the whole pack usually resulting in them getting sick and and theoretically diminishing their desire to ever smoke a cigarette again. The parents were trying to make the point to the teenager that this is harmful for you, but if you think you want it, you should go all the way. A little bit may have sounded fun, but a whole lot of it doesn't. Now, not the best uh, maybe advice for parents, but there is a principle there, and Paul's advice isn't much better either, and it isn't intended to be followed literally, but the point that he's making is very sound. You don't want 
what you're asking. Verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. And this part tells us that you have been set free to love others. Paul's trying to help the Galatians and trying to help us understand what freedom done right really looks like. It's not about rule following, but in our freedom, loving those around us, loving our neighbor. In our sinfulness, we have these poles in our lives and, and we see sort of one extreme in this chapter is people are willing to put themselves back under the law this idea, I'm so dirty and rotten, the only way God can, can even begin to love me is if I keep every rule he's given me. I, I'm such a sinner and you are too. That we need to come up with extra rules just to make sure that we don't even get close to sinning. Now Moses uh, told us to, to honor the Sabbath, so we need to come up with this whole system of, of little laws to make sure that we don't break the, the big Sabbath law. Don't you dare carry that heavy object, not on the Sabbath. Don't you dare walk that far. No, not on the Sabbath and, and so on. All these little laws overlooked the heart behind the Sabbath intended to honor God and, and forgets that the truth that Jesus set us free through grace from those things. And the Sabbath is, is just one example. If I do all these things right, just maybe God will love and approve of me. The law was seen as this cage that, that kept sin under wraps, under control. If you've ever had a, a puppy and you put them in a, in a kennel and you leave the house, you know that the only thing standing between your puppy and a cascading series of bad choices is that thin metal cage. You remove that cage and you have invited doom and chaos in and a need for cleaning supplies that, quite frankly, we can't afford to waste at this time. That cage is the only thing that holds them back. And there were those that held on to the law, seeing it as that kind of cage that restrained people from being let loose with their sins, both in their lives and in the lives of others. But then, Jesus comes and, and he fulfills the law perfectly and achieves for us a standard of, of righteousness and holiness that we can never obtain on, on our own. We can never obtain by ourselves and tells us that we are free in that. We are set free from that cage. But if you were under the, this previous system and the, this weight has been lifted off your shoulders and you're now told that you are free, we have the potential to drift to the other extreme. I'm free. God loves me no matter what. If he's promised to forgive me, I can do whatever I want, right? That's freedom in Christ. Now we, we start to look at all these areas of our lives that, that are maybe outside of God's plan for our sanctification and, and our good, but, but it's okay because forgiveness and grace, they cover that. But that's not freedom. That's selfishness. That's not freedom. That's indulging the flesh. See, selfish freedom makes much of me. It makes sure that I get what I want, what, what I've determined that I want and that I need. Christians, we are set free, but not to use it to get whatever I want. We are set free to love God. And because of that, and quoting Paul here, to serve one another humbly in love, that is to be the end result of our freedom. 
When you're doing freedom right, you are using that freedom to build up and love those around you. Who will I come into contact with today? What does serving them humbly in love look like today? In the start of chapter 5, the section we've been looking at, it asks us this, are you living under grace? Are you living in freedom? And how would you even know if you were or if you weren't? What does that even look like? And I think to do that, you have to ask yourself uh, some important questions. How do you view God? What is the basis of your relationship with him? What motivates you to do what you do? Are you motivated by love or are you motivated by fear? Now, let me use this example to try to bring this to light. How we might know the difference if we're living in love or if we're living in fear. Let me point you to the dishes. At no point in my life have I ever thought that it was a good idea or that it would be fun or that it would bring me joy to do the dishes. I've been married for over 15 years, and my wife can attest to this fact. I had roommates prior to that, and I could get signed affidavits from them that that agree with this as well. But there are days when I find myself doing the dishes. But there can be two very different motivations that lead to this same act. I can be motivated by fear, and I can be motivated by love. What do they look like? How are they different? If I do the dishes because I think that if I don't, my wife is going to get angry and upset with me and there's going to be a series of unfortunate consequences, my actions are motivated by fear. If I'm washing the silverware because I don't want my wife to hulk out and go on a rage bender, I'm motivated by fear. I might do it with a smile on, but inside I know my motivation. Now I hope that when I do the dishes, I do it because I love my wife and Even though I find paper plates and disposable plastic spoons perfectly acceptable, I know it means something to her to use a metal fork and a glass plate. She likes things clean and put away, and so when I walk into the kitchen as an expression of my love, I start doing the dishes. In those situations, my motivation is love, and and I want to show her that love by by doing what's important to her and, and serving her humbly by doing it the way that she wants it done. Now take that illustration and apply it to your relationship with God. Begin to see the difference in our motivations at times. Maybe the same actions and outcomes, but two totally different trajectories to get there. Paul was trying to warn people who were becoming driven by fear. The right actions with the wrong motives was trusting in the law and not freedom. He was also warning them about abusing their freedom and misunderstanding it. This would be like maybe me thinking that, well, I don't want to do the dishes, and I'm a grown adult, and I can live my life my own way. and I shouldn't have to do the dishes. That's freedom. I'm living in freedom. I read one commentator uh, this week uh, that described the Christian life as this narrow bridge that crosses between two pools. On one side uh, is a pool that represents the law and living a life motivated by fear. On the other side is this pool that represents indulging the flesh and our reckless desire to be free from the law and pursue whatever it is that we want. And in the the middle is this, this narrow bridge called freedom in Christ. 
And it's a place that, that knows that God loves me fully as I am, and that love motivates me to trust and obey his commands. I know that because of Jesus' completed work on the cross that I've got nothing to fear as I walk down that middle bridge. I hope that you feel encouraged this week to walk out that freedom, motivated by your love for Christ. I hope that you feel the weight released off your shoulders and any efforts to try to earn God's love. And in this new energy that you would try to look for ways to love those around you as you live freely in Christ. I want to close uh, Bethel with a, with a prayer here. And I recognize for, for many of us, this is a season of life that we can feel a bit helpless, like that there isn't much that we can do. And in some senses, there's a truth to that. There are many things outside of our own personal control, but we acknowledge that things are very much within God's control. And I would just invite you, as you wrestle with your feelings and emotions and thoughts during the season, that you would lean into prayer, that you would see that as an opportunity to live freedom in Christ and love those around you as you pray for them and as you pray with them, and that you would trust your Lord and Savior as we walk through life each day. Beth will pray with me. Oh, Father, help us to trust you and to obey you. And I do pray that we would do all those things based on our love for you. Thank you for loving me as I am. Thank you for the freedom that you offer to me. Help me to understand it fully. Help me to use it wisely. Help me not to be content to stay as I am, but to look more and more like Christ, to help me as I grow and get to know you better, Lord. Thank you for your word to us this morning. Hey, God bless you. Bethel, we love you. We're praying for you. We'll see you.